Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are going to be introducing a classic Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode. It's a new classic. How old is it now? Maybe maybe uh, nine or like, ten months? I feel like it's, a, maybe, it's about a year, give okay. or take, you know? Uh, sometime last winter, we recorded mm-hmm. this episode about dangerous foods, uh, in- including some of my favorite stories about, for example, polar bear liver and oh, the yes. dangers within. Yeah, it's a, it was a fun episode, and uh, it's it's perfect for the holidays because the holidays are a time when so many of us eat things that we feel we should not or know we should not. Like I shouldn't be eating this. I shouldn't be eating this. It's delicious, but I shouldn't be eating this. The cranberry sauce from a can. Yeah, you know that's wrong. Yeah, it comes out in the cylinder. You can still see the ridges where the can is sort of uh, bent a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's. Eat a lot, eat, eat stuff like that, stuff you have a kind of a nostalgia for, but also just like a bunch of rich foods that, you know, you shouldn't be eating, at least in these quantities. But, hey, it's the holidays and it's about fattening up to survive uh, the horrors of winter. But here's my advice. If you are eating turkey and the turkey is overcooked because it always is, mm-hmm. don't waste your time on it. You know, <laughs> just skip the turkey and move on to something else. Well, with a, with a turkey based meal, especially like the Thanksgiving Day meal, there are so many side dishes. You can really just. Pick your poison, as it were. Right. Well, Robert, if you don't have anything else to add, I think we should make way for our episode on a six-course feast of dangerous foods. Yes, let's roll the repeat. And, hey, the next episode after this one, I believe, will be a a second course, Dangerous Foods 2. So if you like this episode, stay tuned. Come back for another course of uh, all new Dangerous Foods. For the revenge. Yes. For the regurgitation. We have quite a feast prepared uh, for ourselves here today. A dangerous feast. (laughs) Yeah, we wanted to think about an interesting aspect of human life, which is how often we put trust, trust at a very level of life and death, into people who do a very mundane task for us, which is preparing food. Yeah. I mean, at a basic level, mundane, right? Yeah. Uh, obviously, with, with uh, appropriate skill, it be, you know, becomes an art, an art form. But we tend to think of just like the very basic idea of someone, say, opening a can of noodles or cooking it up for us. It doesn't require any high science. Yeah. And even if you uh, even if you're talking about preparing food yourself mm-hmm. and it not being something that someone else has cooked for you, a lot of times you're going to be using ingredients that you uh just assume, you know, are properly vetted. These are safe to eat, that the nuts I'm getting out of a jar of nuts are not contaminated with E. coli, that the peanut butter I'm using doesn't have salmonella in it. Mm -hmm. But that may not be a safe assumption, depending on, I don't know, where you live, what kind of industry regulations are in place and how well they're enforced. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to just the human history of cooking and just culinary preparation, right? Because early on, humans learned the value of cooking, a means to basically externalize digestion and aid us in the consumption of things that we would not otherwise be able to eat. Yeah, that's the thing that's easy to forget about. I mean, if you're if you're sitting down to a piece of chicken or steak, I mean, you you probably wouldn't want to eat it just straight up raw, but it Mm -hmm. could be done if you were in a pinch. You know, you could chew it. There are a lot of foods that you just simply can't eat without some cooking. Right. Things, yeah, that would just 
kill us <laughs> if we if we ate it without proper uh, or, preparation. Or, or they'd be just inedible, you know, too yeah. tough or too, you know what I mean? Yeah, cooking improves the taste. It can tenderize uh, the the food in question. Uh, it can kill off pathogens that would otherwise be uh, of dire consequence. Of course, another interesting thing about cooking is that it, in some cases, I think denatures our food mm-hmm. in a way that allows us to sort of separate ourselves from the means of production of the food when we're oh, eating yes. it. So we, you know, like cooking a steak makes you think about it as a fundamentally different thing from the flesh of a dead animal that had to be murdered in order for you to eat this. Oh, indeed. Yeah. You know, and that's, so it kind of it kind of allows you to put some distance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we and then we layer language on top of that. Uh-huh. You don't go to the restaurant and order pig. You don't go to the restaurant and order cow. You order pork and beef. Um, yeah. And, po- pollo and gallina. Very different words. Yeah. <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, and on top of that, you know, the butchering, butchering of animals, culinary preparation in general allows us to more precisely choose what parts we're going to eat, mm-hmm. what parts are delicious, what parts are nutritious, what parts are inedible uh, and or deadly. So you, you keep that tasty uh, crab claw meat, but you throw out the dead man's fingers. You know, I've always wondered this, and I've never been able to find a good answer so far. Maybe there is one out there. Supposedly, uh, apple seeds have a little tiny bit of cyanide in them. Hmm. And I wondered if has anybody ever eaten so many so many apples, seeds, and all that they've gotten cyanide poisoning? Hmm. I, there have been days where I feel like I've eaten that many apples, <laughs> but uh, but but I'll have to I'll have to start counting that. Robert, seeds. are you a secret competitive apple eater? Someday, because that, that's like the I find myself eating more and more apples. I think maybe it was Michael Pollan who pointed out that if you're if you're not hungry enough to eat an apple, then you're not really hungry. Uh, and you shouldn't snack. Huh. And if you are going to snack, hey, an apple's great. So I just tend to to go to the apple for my snack needs if I'm, you know, in any level of self conscious about my uh, my diet. But you know, sometimes you're just hungry enough to eat poutine and not anything else. <laughs> it's true. Sometimes the the apple is not going to scratch that itch. <laughs> well, speaking of fruits, it looks like our first course is arriving. What is this here? Ah, we have some aki fruit uh, to enjoy here. Now, I've never had aki fruit before. What's the deal with aki fruit? Aki fruit is really interesting, and I had I had not actually experienced aki fruit until just a couple of weeks ago when uh, I went on a family vacation to Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Uh, aki is like the, the national dish, uh, the national fruit uh, of Jamaica. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a fruit, but it's not your typical like Western idea of a fruit. For example, it's you have this uh, yellowish or orangish fruit on a tree, and then uh, when it ripens, it pops open, and it looks like a like a three-eyed creature of some kind with the big black glassy eyes inside of it. Wow. The glassy eyes are seeds. Um, so it's kind of a Jim Henson dark crystal kind of creature. Yeah, it really, it really looks kind of alien and weird. Uh, but then, uh, when properly prepared, what they do is they, they take the seeds out. Uh, they they cut out some of the membrane and you're left with these uh, these little yellowish looking lumps. Mm-hmm. And the the main dish that is prepared there is that they take it and they they fry it uh, in a skillet with some uh, bits of codfish. So uh, ackee and saltfish is the dish, some onions in there as well. And it ends up tasting about like scrambled eggs. It has oh. that kind of consistency. Uh, it's not a sweet fruit at all, but it's very good. 
That's nice. So it's not sweet. What does it taste like? Is it kind of spicy or is it kind of, uh, it's kind of, I think it kind of, it doesn't have, I was, I never had a real sense that it had much of a taste. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's in there with a little bit of fish, uh, some onions. It's fried up. It's more of a texture kind of Yeah, thing. more of a texture. And the texture is, I think, closest to, to scrambled eggs. That would be my, my main comparison there. Well, that sounds like something worth trying. Yeah, I highly recommend it, uh, for anybody who goes to Jamaica for no other reason because it's, you know, it's the national dish there. Now you said you, they, they toss the seeds out, right? Yes, because, uh, as I'll lay out here, the seeds are, are poisonous. Um, <laughs> the, this plant was originally native to West Africa, migrated to Jamaica in 1778, apparently, uh, due to, um, Jamaica's first botanist, Thomas Clark, who introduced it there. The Aki tree is actually known, um, as, uh, Blaya Sapita, and it's named after, uh, Captain William Bly, the notorious, uh, pirate. So interesting history there. But where the poison comes in is that unripe ackee fruit contains a poison called um, uh, hypoglycin. And actually, there are two different uh, varieties in the fruit. There's hypoglycin A and hypoglycin B. Which one is worse? Well, A is the main problem here. Uh, and so you have extremely high levels of hypoglycin B in the unripe fruit. Mm-hmm. But then the fruit ripens, it pops open like some sort of alien creature and stares at you with its three black eyes. Uh, and at that point, uh, you know, you, you open it up, you remove the, the seeds. So the only edible portion is the yellow uh, areli, which is uh, surrounded by, um, again, the toxic seeds. And there's a membrane at the base of the seed mantle that's also poisonous. You have to take that out, too. Okay, so it sounds like if you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't try to eat an ackee fruit. Right. Talk to somebody who's familiar with this fruit and knows what knows how to carve it up right. Yeah. But luckily, if it's on the menu at a place in Jamaica, like they know how to cook it. Like yeah. everyone has familiarity with this particular dish there. But you are saying in a survival situation, stick to the scrambled eggs. I would not probably the, so, not the yeah. black hole eggs. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, someone who knows how to, to deal with this, they're going to clean it. They're going to wash the fruit afterwards. It's going to be boiled in water. Then they're going to throw out that water because that could contain a trace of the poison. And it's going to be perfectly good to eat. It's going to be uh, rich in uh, you know fatty acids, vitamin A, zinc, and protein. But if you were to eat it, uh-huh. uh, 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 the unripened version, you could get what's called called Jamaican vomiting sickness. That sounds like a not very fun sickness. Yeah, it causes a lot of vomiting and can lead to coma and death. And uh, and the biochemistry of it is pretty interesting. It kills you uh, via a form of uh, hypoglycemia or uh, low blood sugar. Oh. So normally, as the body uses up uh, the glucose in the blood, your liver releases glucose that it form that it stores in the form of glycogen. The toxin, however, halts the process. Mm. So a few hours after ingesting all of this, uh, your body glucose crashes and just leaves you hypoglycemic. Oh, this sounds similar to some uh, not poisons, but venoms I've heard of before that attack by causing uh, an insulin spike in the body and dropping the victim's blood sugar to dangerously low levels. Huh, yeah, yeah, it sounds like those are probably similar. I think there's like a there's like a snail in the ocean that does that or something. Hmm. All right, well what do we have next on the the menu here? Ah, well, it looks like the next thing arriving is something I'm a little bit familiar with, but haven't had the courage to eat myself. It's, it's something that's straight out of Iceland. And from what I've heard, it's 
Well, it's bad news if you're not game, but if, <laughs> if you are game, I guess some people really like it. So, so what do we have sitting here before us? It looks like some little cubes of cheese, like the kind <laughs> that the tasters hand out at the grocery store and the deli. So it's a little white cube with a toothpick stuck in it. And I guess there, there's nothing else on the plate. So it looks like you just eat it by itself. Oh, except there's a shot of clear liquor sitting next to it. So I guess maybe you're supposed to take that with it. Now, what's the smell I'm getting uh, from the, uh, the dish here, Joe? You know, as, uh, as one person, I, I watched a video online of somebody eating this stuff and the first comment was smells like Windex. That oh. is a, that is a common description of what this is, which is, Rotten Greenland shark meat, a, a national delicacy of Iceland, also known as hakal. And, uh, and I, I, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that the right way. I don't know the best way to say hakal, but there it is. It's, uh, it, it's compared to industrial cleaning products often in the aroma. It's very high in ammonia. Mm-hmm. So it's going to smell like Windex or like bleach or like, Urine. That okay. is the, the most common point of comparison other than cleaning products. So it's, it's urine, it's bleach, and then also a kind of like ambient rotting fishiness of ancient days. Okay. Now it's of course worth throwing in at this point and reminding everyone that far northern uh, cultures uh, uh-huh. typically have a lot of survival foods. Yes. Where, yeah, it may not seem as, um, as delightful, but you have to put it in the context of surviving the winter mm-hmm. with the foods that can be preserved. Yeah, this is a, this is a common feature of of far northern climates where you you have dishes that are kind of uh fermented or preserved in a way that produces chemical combinations that might seem unappealing to people not accustomed to them. Uh so yeah, so this is Greenland shark meat and I've never had it before. I've read that the uh the texture is also sort of sometimes compared to cheeses like it's uh it's a little bit chewy at first but then and it kind of descends into a powdery grain kind of texture as it dissolves in the mouth. Uh, and they say you are supposed to chase it with a shot of Brinovin, which is an unsweetened uh, caraway schnapps <laughs> from Iceland that I, I did taste that when I was in Iceland. And, you know, I, I love Iceland. It was not a fan of that liquor. Yeah. Was it potent? Did it like warm you up? It was very herbal. You know, <laughs> it was like it was like somebody got some herbal tea and then reduced it down by like not making it thicker, but just concentrated the flavor mm-hmm. by about 10,000 times. And that that's what it was. So how do you get some of this, Carl? How do you make it? You Well, you first, like I say, you start with a nice freshly caught Greenland shark or another uh, shark from the same family, the sleeper sharks, the hmm. somniosis sharks. The, uh, the Greenland shark in particular is the somniosis microcephalus, which sounds like it means a uh, sleepy tiny head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh the Greenland shark is a really cool animal. It's it's also known as the uh Ekalasuak, which is uh the an Inuit term. I've seen a lot of variations on the Inuit spelling and pronunciation, so I think they're just different transliterations of the mm-hmm. same uh term. And it's a huge shark. The Greenland shark gets as big or bigger than great whites. It grows uh lives probably for more than two hundred years. It uh, grows very slowly and it can get more than 20 feet long, weighs more than a ton. And they dwell in some of the coldest waters of the earth between like freezing and about 10 degrees Celsius. And it's funny that it's known for appearing very sluggish. Mm-hmm. They say when you see it in the water, it looks lethargic and impassive. It's just not really impressed by anything. I read one account that said that 
people just you can you can catch them by literally just dragging them out of the water with your bare hands huh. if they get close enough to the surface uh, they don't fight much so it sounds like of all the sharks it's kind of the most stoic and resigned to the whims of fate but the question that i had is like wait a minute why does it taste like urine uh th- this Knowledge about the taste of Greenland shark meat apparently goes back a, a long way. I found an interesting article by Lindsay O'Reilly in Canadian Geographic magazine about uh, the Greenland shark's significance in Inuit culture. And uh, it's it's offering another variation on that same name. This time it's Skalugsuak. Yeah, I love that. Skalugsuak. And the, I want to read a little quote from this article. She says, Inuit legend has it that once long ago, an old woman was drying her hair after washing it with urine when the wind suddenly whipped the damp cloth from her hand and carried it out to sea. This cloth, the Inuit say, became Skalugsuak, the Greenland shark. I love that because it sounds like there's been a recent trend, I think, in a couple of different skits where uh, you have individuals coming up with elaborate um, descriptions of how bad a beer is. Uh-huh. And uh, this seems like um, a more primal version of that. I can imagine Inuit sitting around eating some of this and saying, you know, this uh this particular meat tastes as if an old woman washed her hair in urine and then <laughs> threw that hair into the water and it became a shark. Yeah, it's very flowery. Yeah, it's like uh, somebody is really overriding the spear advocate article. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, getting to the point about the dangers associated with it, if not prepared properly, you don't want to eat Greenland shark meat fresh. Uh, you might not want to eat it anyway because it smells like bleach and urine. But let's say you're really, really hungry or you're looking for something to feed your dogs. Don't go with fresh Greenland shark meat because it is poisonous as heck. Uh, So when it's fresh and raw, the meat of a Greenland shark contains high levels of uric acid or urea and trimethylamine oxide. Uh, And so if it's eaten in high enough doses, it can cause effects that uh, from the outside resemble drunkenness. Sometimes people can say, like, oh, this person is drunk on shark. But (laughs) Uh, it can lead to really bad things like nausea and vomiting, uh, oral burning sensations, explosive diarrhea, muscle twitching and convulsions, trouble breathing, and even in some cases, coma and death. And the, the most toxic ingredient in the Greenland shark meat is the uh, triethylamine oxide. This is a chemical used by the shark as a kind of natural antifreeze for the proteins and enzymes in its body. And it it does a good thing for the shark because it allows the shark to survive the freezing temperatures of the water that it lives in without the formation of ice crystals and the destruction of proteins inside the body. So it, it's, it's a fish that's got antifreeze in it. Huh. it you, and you, you know, you know the rule about not eating antifreeze. Yes. Yeah. That one's drilled in uh, at an early age. You know, I think there was an episode of the uh, documentary series Human Planet. In which you see some uh, some fishermen uh, actually pull one of these creatures out of the water, and then I believe they feed it to a dog. I can't remember if they cooked it or not. Yeah, actually, I I've read that sometimes the meat is fed to dogs, and it's it makes the dogs drunk essentially. Oh. Uh, but it doesn't sound like something. Don't feed Greenland shark to your pet if okay. you happen to have some fresh Greenland shark. I don't know why you would, because you, you typically don't get it fresh unless you catch it yourself because it's so poisonous. And and so how do you get the hakarl, the version that's okay to eat, even if some people find it very disgusting? Well, the traditional Icelandic way of preparation is let it rot. 
Oh. And specifically, let it rot under pressure. So you bury it under rocks or gravel for like three months, and then you let it rot there. And then you dig it up, and you hang it out to dry for another three or four months. So this has had, you know, many months of rotting uh, under pressure to press out some of the liquids and then hanging up to dry. And this process supposedly makes the shark safer to eat as the poisons are removed through the pressing and through the chemical action of the fermentation. Uh, but uh, another method of preparing Greenland shark would simply be to boil it in several changes of water to leach out the toxins. But the several changes of water is important. You don't want to eat Greenland shark soup made from a, you know, a broth of the meat. Huh. Uh, but anyway, if prepared in the correct way, they say it is it is very pungent and likely to terrify uh, tourists. But it's safe to eat. You can huh. eat this rotten shark and not die. I'm I'm reminded of uh, the episode of The Simpsons in which Homer had a an, an especially long um, sub sandwich uh-huh. that uh, Marge made him throw out. He ended up hiding behind a radiator, and he would sneak it out from behind the radiator and eat it, <laughs> it gray and rotten. Um, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> All right, well, let's clear these dishes away because we have uh, we have another um, Arctic dish coming out for us. Well, it is labeled on the menu as Boreal Wild Game. Hmm. Uh, it smells very gamey. Oh, I see the description here. This is polar bear meat. We're being offered polar bear. Oh, okay. Well, doesn't seem like there could be a problem there, right? <laughs> no, People it seems like bear. you probably shouldn't eat polar bear, should you? <laughs> well... Probably not, but I'm I imagine sure I've is... eaten bear before. Oh, really? I think when, because when I was a kid in uh, Newfoundland, Canada for about three years, mm-hmm. uh, occasionally interesting meats would present themselves, such as moose, uh, or in, in, I think one case there was bear stew. You have to put yourself in a pretty extreme uh, situation, I think, for the question to even come up, should I eat this polar bear? Yeah, but it turns out that the polar bear, like the ackee fruit and the Greenland shark, is a food that if you are in a position where you find yourself needing to eat it, you better have somebody on hand who knows how to prepare it yes. and knows which parts to avoid. That's right. Uh, because, uh, you know, the native peoples of the Arctic, they've known for a long time uh, that some days the bear eats you and some days you eat the bear, right? Mm-hmm. But on the days... But some days you eat the bear and then it gets you back. Yes, because <laughs> you when you do eat the bear, you got to know not to eat the bear's liver. Yeah. Uh, and as early as 1596, you had European explorers who learned this lesson the hard way, uh, coming down with just horrible illness, like nightmarish illness following the consumption of polar bear liver, because with many different animals, certainly the kind of animals that uh, a European uh, would consume back home, the liver is totally fair game. The liver is a delicacy. The liver should be eaten. Right. Yeah. You have a fine French restaurant making a foie gras or liver mousse or something. Yeah. But then you start dining on polar bear liver and you might feel drowsy, sluggish, irritable. Suddenly you have a severe headache. You get bone pain. Hold on. Bone pain? Bone pain. What does bone pain even feel like? <laughs> well, there's one way to find out. <laughs> yeah, Blurred vision. And then you're vomiting. And finally, this is where it gets just really crazy, is you start uh, experiencing skin peels. 
peeling skin. Yeah. I think you accidentally did your research from the plot synopsis of a Hellraiser movie. It sounds like a Hellraiser movie. Yeah, because in the milder cases, you're talking just flaking skin around the mouth. All right. Uh You know, unpleasant, but hey, not too bad. But some accounts reported cases of full body skin loss. Even even the thick skin on the bottoms of a patient's feet could peel away, oh. leaving the uh, the underlying flesh bloody and, expo- and exposed. Oh. And then on top of that, liver damage, hemorrhage, coma, and death. Save your tears. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that is messed up. So so what's the deal with the polar bear's liver? Why is it why is it so poisonous? Well, it all comes down to vitamin A, interestingly enough. Vitamin A? Yeah. People take pills of that. It's yeah. in carrots. It should be fine. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we've mentioned it being in some of like a, being one of the pros to uh, some of the foods that we're mentioning in this episode. But uh-huh. uh, because A, vitamin A is important for eyesight, reproduction, fetal development, growth, immune response, and the cellular formation of tissue. Can I, that's key. Can I go on a little side tangent here? Yeah. This is a thing I had to research for a brain stuff video once. It's a myth that vitamin A increases your eyesight beyond normal capacity. Oh, okay. This yeah. is the whole, like, if you eat enough carrots, you'll improve your eyesight. Right. What is true is that vitamin A and carrots are a good source of vitamin A, though plenty of other vegetables are, mm-hmm. too. Uh, anything that has beta carotene in it, uh, so like spinach is, is great, too. Uh, uh, they will help maintain normal vision, but they're not going to upgrade your vision above the baseline. Okay. All right. Good to know. Now, if you, like me, take a lot of vitamins, uh, you probably notice that on days when you take extra vitamins, you end up with, you know, just splendidly golden urine <laughs> as extra <laughs> yeah. vitamins leave your body. Um, and, and that's the case with a number of vitamins. Uh, they simply dissolve in water, leave your body in urine. Uh-huh. A, however, vitamin A only dissolves in fat. So that means it doesn't exit the body in urine. Instead, it collects in the body's filtration organ, the liver, uh, where it can reach toxic levels. And generally, this occurs over a prolonged period of time. And if, if it does get out of control, then you end up with chronic hypervitaminosis A. And that, in humans, involves all the various symptoms that we've already mentioned. That sounds pretty horrible. Uh, so, so wait a minute. How much polar bear liver do you have to eat for it to be dangerous? All right. Well, to, well, to put it in uh, in context here, uh, an average healthy human liver contains 575 international units of vitamin A per gram, while a polar bear's liver contains between 24,000 and 35,000 uh, international units per gram. So wow. you compare that to the tolerable upper level of vitamin A intake for a healthy uh, adult human, that's 10,000 IU. Like supercharging your vitamin A consumption to uh, just uh, absurd levels. Why is there this much vitamin A in a polar bear liver? Well, it all comes down, uh, I mean, a lot of it comes down to the the hostile environment, the Mm -hmm. necessary biological adaptations. So in the case of the, the bear, uh, the bear doesn't need that much vitamin A in its diet. You you put a bear in a in a zoo, it can get by with with far lower quantities of vitamin A. Uh-huh. But in its natural uh, environment, uh, bears are eating a lot of uh, bearded seals, uh, ringed seals, both of which store high levels of vitamin A in their livers and blubber. Uh, and a lot of this seems to have to do with the, 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 the again, the, the role that vitamin A plays in growth and naval development. So the, the seals need all that, uh, extra vitamin A in order to advance their vulnerable pups, uh, huh. into, uh, you know, a more survivable stage. 
So it all comes down to the polar bear needs to eat those seals. It needs to to tolerate high levels of vitamin A, so it has evolved to roll with higher levels of vitamin A. It can store those higher levels of vitamin A in its filtration system, in its liver. It's when we eat its filtration system, if when we eat its liver, we end up with quantities of vitamin A that we have totally not evolved to deal with. You know, this might be a different kind of category of food than our others, where I, I would say, you know, if if you're having your food prepared by somebody who knows what they're doing, Aki Fruit and Hakarl, go for it. Mm-hmm. I'd probably say don't eat a polar bear. Yeah, I, it's hard for me to get, <laughs> given the, pol- the polar bear's recent plight, uh, yeah, I can't get excited about the idea of eating one of these uh, creatures. I mean, unless it's eat or be eaten. Uh, yeah. Certainly in a survival case, survivalist uh, case, uh, though, I would say eat the polar bear, but know what you're doing. Not the liver. Not the liver. And don't yeah. feed it to a dog, uh, et cetera. Oh, and it's just a little fun fact. Uh, I once uh, wrote a short story uh, in which Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton meets uh, Frankenstein. Oh. Yeah. Or actually, he ends up meeting Frankenstein's monster, I believe. And uh, the creature uh, in this particular story, I had uh, him uh, consume polar bear liver, and that's how he gets all disfigured and gross. Wow. Yeah. I'd like to read that, dude. Yeah, it's out there somewhere. Maybe I'll have to throw up a link somewhere. Okay. Well, oh, wait, it looks like another course is arriving. Ooh, what do we have here? Ah, well, it's a very beautiful plate. It's an ornately decorated plate, and it's covered in very thinly sliced, pale, translucent sashimi, tiny, just tiny, tissue-thin slices of fish. Mm. It looks good. So imagine you are in this scenario. You're sitting down to a plate that looks like this, and, you know, it does look good. So it looks so good you eat the whole plate by yourself. But what would you do if you'd just eaten a big plate of sushi and then suddenly you, you start feeling some strange sensations? Uh, well, I generally do, but generally that's just the sake. Uh, oh yeah. Well, that's a different thing entirely. Uh, no, th- this would be, uh, more like a, you're sitting at the table and there's kind of a burning and tingling on the lips. Oh, that's the wasabi. And then it kind of turns into some pins and needles pricking at the lips, tongue, mouth, the throat. Okay, that's a problem. Yeah, and then suddenly you might start to lose some coordination. That might still be the sake. Could be. Uh, but it starts to feel more like there's a nervous system disruption going on throughout your body. You, you eventually collapse to the floor. That's bad. Yeah, and you find your muscles are very weak and sluggish, and eventually you are mostly unable to move your body of your own free will, and then the vomiting begins. Leaving you barely able to order seconds on that delicious dish. <laughs> now, this is a worst case scenario leading up potentially to death in the event of improperly prepared fugu or puffer fish. Uh, now, I, again, uh, like the other cases, I don't want to badmouth a perfectly good food if it's prepared well. And, and fugu is a perfectly excellent sushi fish. And it's not inherently dangerous when served the right way, uh, when prepared by a trained chef who knows what they're doing, who has a license to prepare this kind of food. And uh, since the introduction, the introduction of protective measures like government restrictions on who's allowed to prepare and serve fugu, fugu poisonings and deaths have been rare. Uh, but there is a reason that these protective measures have been put in place. I, I've read that sometimes in Japan uh, or maybe in certain places, fugu is known by the nickname teppo, meaning gun. <laughs> and like so like gun sushi. And that kind of makes sense. Uh, so some organs in the puffer fish are naturally equipped with tetrodotoxin, which is an extremely potent neurotoxin. Have you all talked about tetrodotoxin? 
on the show before? I feel like it's come up a time or two, uh-huh. but uh, in passing. It's very, very toxic. By mass ingested, it's reportedly about a hundred times as toxic as potassium cyanide. Mm, so okay. it, you, deadly you know, stuff. The scene in the James Bond movie where the bad guy, you know, is committing suicide with the cyanide pill. Mm-hmm. He would need a tetrodotoxin pill one one hundredth the size of the cyanide pill. It'd okay. Be very easy to hide in a little compartment. Uh, but anyway, tetrodotoxin. What does it do to you? Why, why does it cause all these problems? Essentially, it works by messing up communication between the body's nerves and muscles by blocking sodium ion channels. Uh, and, uh, and this can lead to paralysis, especially the, the really creepy thing I've heard is that it's conscious paralysis. That sounds especially horrifying. Oh, wow. You so don't just look locked in. Yeah. Like you, you're aware of what's going on. It doesn't necessarily knock you unconscious, but you can't move mm-hmm. and you, you might, you might be having trouble breathing, uh, having a fast beating or irregularly beating heart. It, it sounds very scary. But like I said, if this is properly prepared, Fugu meat. This is this is not a problem you should have. You you'll find this tetrodotoxin in especially high concentrations in the fish's liver and gonads. Okay. So the the chef who knows what he or she is doing can cut around the right parts of the fish, knows what to do to prepare it right. They're not going to serve you the parts that are going to kill you. But what happens when when I don't know things go wrong when somebody doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, it, it's not pretty. I wanted to read from a little case study of fugu poisoning from 1996 that was hosted, uh, on a report on the CDC website. So this is a case where there were three guys hanging out and they get some fugu that was, I believe, shipped to them from a friend in Japan. Ooh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, well, let's try it out. So here's one of the cases. Uh, so case one is a 23 year old man who he ate a piece of fugu, quote, the size of a quarter, approximately one quarter ounce. So that's not that much. Uh-huh. About 10 or 15 minutes later, it says he had onset of tingling in his mouth and lips, followed by dizziness, fatigue, headache, a constricted feeling in his throat, difficulty speaking, tightness in his upper chest, facial flushing, shaking, nausea and vomiting. His legs weakened and he collapsed. On examination in the ED, his blood pressure was 150 over 90. Uh, heart rate was 117 beats per minute. Respiratory rate, 22 per minute. Uh, and he had a slightly elevated temperature. And there were, there were a couple other guys who had the same thing. Uh, one of them reported that he noticed a tingling in his tongue in the right side of his mouth, followed by, quote, light feeling, anxiety, and thoughts of dying. Oh. It, it induces thoughts of dying. It's kind of interesting. Or maybe this is, maybe he just knew what was up at that point. He's like, Oh yeah, I just ate some fugu. Time to have thoughts of dying. Yeah. I wonder if he went into that scenario, you know, knowing the, the, cause that's, it seems to be one of the attractive things about the fish, about the, the quote, the gun, right? Yeah. Is that it is, there's a sense of danger to it. Yes. It's, it's, uh, in this sense, it's not just a really tasty food, but it's kind of a thrill experience yeah. with the knowledge that, you know, Oh, if this goes wrong, we could all die. It, it's, I don't know, maybe kind of like bungee jumping or something. You know that it's inherently safe if your instructor has secured everything properly, but the thrill of knowing that maybe something could go wrong and I could die makes it more exciting. And in a sense, it's, it's kind of, you know, you go into any kind of restaurant scenario and, um, you know, you trust that the uh, the chef knows what they're doing, and yeah. Uh, but in most cases, it's the difference between like, all right, if the food tastes 
good, then there's a good chance that the chef knows what they're doing. Here is a case where it's it's live or die. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, but then again, uh, this is something we touched on at the beginning of the episode. But I don't think this is inherently all that different from very uh, mundane, familiar foods, not just interesting delicacies. It's, it's uh, true. Yeah. It's like you go to eat a hamburger. And if this is, you know, maybe uh, meat that was ground under in unclean facilities and it was served to you undercooked and you know the the right set of circumstances line up with people failing to do their jobs right and giving you safe food yes this could kill you too yeah yeah indeed like most of the items we're discussing here today they are extreme and exotic examples of a truth that uh, spreads just across the menu for yeah. uh, for humans. But uh, I wanted to return to this case. These three guys who got fugu poisoning mm-hmm. in 1996. Now, this isn't the only case of fugu poisoning. It, it happens every now and then. But this was the one case I looked at. All three of these guys survived. Uh, so it's not necessarily a death sentence, even if you do get the poisoning. Uh, all three were treated with intravenous hydration, gastric lavage, that means like stomach pumping, okay. cleaning the inside of your stomach, and, ev- and uh, activated charcoal, which I think the idea is that the... Uh, the toxins that were still in the digestive system would bind to the charcoal rather than uh, entering the body's chemistry. Okay. So another interesting fact about uh, the tetrodotoxin in fugu, and some there are other sea creatures that have tetrodotoxin too, like blue-ringed octopus and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the puffer fish raised in aquariums with clean water tend to be non-toxic. Oh, okay. Well, huh. that would lead one to believe that they're acquiring these toxic properties from something in their diet. Exactly. That's something yeah. you see with a number of uh, of different animals, including some uh, some poison frogs, for example. Yeah, and this seems to be the case with the fugu. So, it what scientists think now is that they get their tetrodotoxin producing capabilities uh, through something in their food, specifically through eating foods containing bacteria. And it now appears to be the case that fugu become toxic by capturing and using tetrodotoxin produced by bacteria that produce the tetrodotoxin. So they don't make the poison. They, they get the, they get it from the bacteria and they have evolved a resistance to that poison that allows them to store it as a defensive mechanism within their bodies. So if you were a spy extracting neurotoxins from a puffer fish in order to assassinate your target, you're using essentially a third party. uh, There's a middleman, that puffer fish. Fish, yeah. Third generation poison. Okay, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do want to stress one more time. I, I don't want to be an alarmist about fugu. They uh, they say you know the, the the chefs who are licensed to serve fugu know what they're doing, and it's it's supposed to be a very safe experience. Yeah, just maybe it's just some guy in your dorm or apartment <laughs> right. building. Says, what what hey, I'd really be fugu in. What I'd really be worried about is if you're uh, out. I don't know, snorkeling or something, and one of your buddies catches one yeah. and says, let me prepare some boatside sashimi for us. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good a good uh, opportunity to uh, turn them down. All right, well, what do we have next here? Oh, we have a nice uh, cassava root salad and, uh, oh, and a little tapioca pudding on the side. Um <laughs> uh, now, here's one I've had before. I've had tapioca pudding. Oh, yeah. We, I feel like most of us have probably had tapioca pudding. Perhaps you've had bubble tea with tapioca bubbles in it. Is that what that is? Uh, I believe in most cases. I always get the kind with the tapioca, but that I, I there may be another variety that is available as well. I, I've never liked bubble tea. I found it kind of gross. Like, why do you want little lumps in the 
stuff you're drinking. Uh, I need flavorful lumps in my uh, beverages. I, I, I kind of dig it. Robert um, Lamb, endorser of lumps. <laughs> yeah. Um, tapioca itself has its roots, if you will, in the cassava root. So cassava is cultivated throughout the tropical world for its roots, which are just super starchy. Mm-hmm. They contain nearly the maximum theoretical concentration of, of starch on a dry weight basis among food crops. So, so we're we're exceeding potato territory here. Yeah. Um, and, and you can think of them in terms of uh, potato. They're essentially like a tropical potato. Uh-huh. Uh, fresh roots contain about 30 percent starch, very little protein, but yeah, they have a number of different uses. They're used to, to produce uh, cassava flour, so you get breads, you get tapioca, uh, you can get a laundry starch, uh, derive <laughs> a laundry starch from it. Uh, there's a, there alcoholic beverages that are made from it. Of course there are. Yeah. And, uh, oh yeah, uh, there's also a cyanide producing sugar, uh, uh, derivative, uh, that occurs in varying amounts in most varieties of cassava. Wait, 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 wait. A cyanide? Cyanide. Producing? Yeah. So there's, yeah, essentially, cyanide uh in the cassava. Well, good thing there'd have to be as a uh, hundred times as much of that as there would be of the tetrodotoxin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um it, just to, to back up a little bit, cassava probably was first cultivated uh, by the Maya in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh so quite a while ago, there's mm-hmm. been a, a lot of cultivation of this, a lot of time for for humans to work out the kinks to know what to eat, what not to eat. Uh-huh. Um, and even back then, they developed a complex refining system to remove poison from the plant by grating, pressing, and heating the tubers. Okay, and uh, then they also um, they also used uh, some of the the poison for darts and arrows. So basically, you want to avoid the leaves, which have the highest concentration of these uh, cyanogenic uh, glucosides, and uh, you also want to peel. The, uh, the, the roots as well, because the peel is also fairly potent. Oh, but all the nutrition's in the outside. I know. Oh, no, wait, that's carrots. Well, <laughs> I mean, I always, when I'm eating something, say, um, like a potato or, um, what is that delicious kind of German, uh, cross between an artichoke and a, a, su- a sunchoke. Oh, sunchoke. Uh, yeah. yeah, I love sunchokes, but I love the, the texture of the sunchoke. I would never want to eat a peeled sunchoke, uh-huh. but apparently most, uh, methods call for peeling the cassava root. Uh, just to avoid any potential poisoning. Um, on top of this, cooking the cassava tends to uh, remove the toxicity. Um, and adequately processed cassava flour and, cass- and cassava-based products have a very low cyanide content and are just very safe to eat. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is one of these foods, and I believe there are other foods like this that are there sort are. of standard staples that are fine once they've been cooked properly. But you wouldn't want to eat them raw. Are, are lima beans also in that category? Lima beans are off are also on the list of of things that yeah you definitely want to cook. I want to say red beans as well, red kidney beans uh, as well uh, are also on that list. Yeah, it's just things where you know it, we we're fortunate to live in a time where long ago uh, people went through the uh, painful and potentially lethal process of figuring out. Uh, which part of the plant is good and under what circumstances is it good to eat? Uh, so yeah, today we can enjoy tapioca pudding, uh, even though at some point in the past, um, some uh, Mayans, uh, went to an early grave because they, uh, had to figure out how it works. 
That's something I think about often. The, uh, the, the debt we owe to our ancestors, the people of many, many years ago who figured out what you couldn't eat and paid for that research with their lives. Yeah. I mean, without even getting into so many processing, food processing technology, I mean, just the basic ability to turn grain into bread, et cetera. It's just. You know, I, I, anytime I read about all this stuff, I just imagine myself in the wilderness starving, right? <laughs> trying to, to figure out which berries I dare eat and yeah. which ones will kill me dead. Can I eat these mushrooms? I don't know. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Mushrooms is an entire, that's an entirely different, uh, uh, area to consider there because you have so many you know, delicious, uh, food worthy mushrooms, even in our, uh, our own local environment here. And then so many just deadly ones as well. Again, the rule with mushrooms is if you really don't know, don't eat it. Yes. <laughs> indeed. Yes. And, and people continue to learn that one the hard way. Okay. Well, I wanted to find out though, all of these we've talked about are, are, interesting to me in that they become perfectly fine as long as you can trust the person who prepared them. You know, right. they're, they're not going to hurt you if, if you've acquired the food properly, prepared it in the right way, and you, you check all the boxes and you're going to be fine. But what is the food out there that is not just interestingly uh, dangerous in potentia, you know, in potential, but that, that actually gets the most people? Well, you know, prior to this episode, I might have guessed pork. Yeah. You know, like a, yeah. especially pork given sausage. That, yeah. Or, or barbecue pork because there have been some headlines in recent years where, where there have been barbecue competitions and illness uh, springs up. So that would have been, that would have been my guess. Well, there was one report from September of 2009 that the FDA issued and it was an, it was a list of the top 10 most dangerous foods in the United States at the time based on the number and severity of food poisoning outbreaks by food vector. Okay, so not so, just like three guys eating fugu and, and stealing the headlines, but actual, no, actual like numbers. thousands yeah. of people, yeah. Uh, so what was the culprit? You know, was it, was it fugu? Was it ackee? No, it was none of these, none of these foods we've talked about even made the list. The real criminal was salad. Ah. Specifically leafy greens. Ah, which would, you know, often feels like the safest thing, right? I know, yeah. As the Simpsons once observed, you don't make friends with salad, especially if the salad is funneling listeria into your friends' bodies. Ah. Uh, so I want to read from the report. They say, iceberg lettuce, romaine lettuce, leaf lettuce, butter lettuce, baby leaf lettuce, immature lettuce or leafy greens, escarole, endive, spring mix, spinach, cabbage, kale, arugula, or shard account for 24% of all the outbreaks linked to the FDA top 10. Uh, those outbreaks sickened over 13,568 people who were reported to have become ill. Almost 30% of all the reported illnesses caused by the FDA top 10. Uh, don't know if it's still the same today as it was in 2009. I, I hope this has changed in the past six years or so. Uh, but uh, as for food that not only sickened people but killed them, I tried to look up food poisoning outbreaks with the most fatalities to see if there was a running thread, but I couldn't find one. It seems like it was all over the place. It had meats, cheeses, vegetables, packaged food products like peanut butter, bag spinach. Uh, I mean, it, it it seems like no matter where you turn, Something that you're probably consuming could kill you if something has failed somewhere in the process between the the farm and your face. So what you're saying is that we could have many more six course dinners like this one if, <laughs> if listeners choose to uh, uh, to to attend it with us. Right, but I, I'd say the real takeaway here is that uh, I think the the most dangerous foods are not the kinds of foods 
uh, that, that make people feel uneasy because mm-hmm. they're unfamiliar, you know, st- delicacies from other countries that many Americans wouldn't be familiar with. That they're going to be things that you eat every day. Yeah. Things without that overt danger factor, but still with a very inherent, uh, sense of danger, if not prepared with, uh, you know, a, a monicum of, uh, of decency and, uh, and, and awareness. Now, let me, let me offer a, a caveat even to the last thing about salad. I, I hope you don't take this as a, a recommendation to stop eating salad. You know, leafy greens are a wonderful thing oh, to yeah, have as yeah, part of your it. diet. And here's my recommendation. Don't buy the pre-bagged, pre-washed stuff and just eat it straight up. Buy a head of lettuce, cut it up and wash it yourself. Get you a salad spinner. It's worth the work. It's very nice. I don't know. That's a lot of work, Joe. I kind of like just <laughs> opening the bag, dumping it and then opening the little packets and then I have a salad. But well, OK, no it, accounting for if taste. It keeps me from dying. I guess I'll try it. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Uh, we're going to clear the dishes away here. Uh, thanks to everybody for uh, for joining us for this dinner. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. All right, so there you have it. Dangerous Foods Part 1. There will be a brand new part two coming out in the, uh, the days ahead. Oh, you're gonna love it. Mm-hmm. There's some good stuff in there. Some dangerous stuff, some poisonous stuff, and some misunderstood stuff. Things we think that are poisonous that have kind of a reputation for being bad, but maybe aren't, or at least aren't in the way that we, you know, think that they are. Maybe they'll just poison your mind. Yeah. And if you want to poison your mind a little more, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is where you will find all of our podcast episodes. You will find, uh, links out to our various social media accounts. You also find blog blog posts, videos, you name it, all right there, stufftoblowyourmind.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us, as always, at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.